And thank you very much for listening in to another episode of In the Sheds on Code with Kingy, where for today's show we are joined by rugby historian and editor for the club rugby website, Adam Julian. So on the pod we discussed the historical project the writer has going on in relation to the Black Ferns, before then delving into the 10-year career that he had working alongside Sky Sport with the college rugby scene, and then we go on to round off the show with what the future looks like for him and his involvement with club rugby in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic. Now, I had a lot of fun talking to Adam. Uh, We've been friends for quite a while now, pretty much since when I left school. And even then, he managed to bring up some stories that I had no idea about and had a bit of a chuckle with. So, yeah, hopefully you guys have a bit of a laugh as well. Enjoy. I guess, like, first things first, like, what have you been up to over the lockdown period? Going progressively mad, getting fatter by drinking too much beer. I've tried to write, I've tried to read, I've tried to distract myself from the misery and boredom of the situation, but it's been very difficult, and I'm really looking forward to sport resuming and society opening up again. Human beings aren't designed to be caged inside, avoiding each other forever, so hopefully the health officials have got this thing right and we can resume some semblance of normality as swiftly as possible. For sure. What have you been doing work-wise? Have you been doing anything in that regard or have you sort of been put on lay-by while all sports on hold? I've had a project for the last six months with the rugby union profiling the black ferns. If you go to allblacks.com, you can get a record and biography of every All Black who's represented New Zealand stretching back to 1884. You don't really have that information on the Black Ferns. So last year I approached the Rugby Union and haggled an arrangement to write the stories of 209 Black Ferns, and I'm about two-thirds done, 80,000 words, and unfortunately the second instalment of my contract expired on March 20. The world in New Zealand went into lockdown on March 25, and the next day I read in the New Zealand Herald that New Zealand rugby was anticipating $130 million in losses, so that was the end of that contract for the short term. But I'm determined to finish this novel project, which was really started out of desperation. I'd always wanted to do something a little bit different in rugby. I was lucky that I was doing that with the high school football, but that gig expired last year, so I wanted to maintain a niche, and I managed to get this Blackfern's biography idea off the ground, and it's been very illuminating and challenging, but unfortunately it's stalled at the moment because there's no money to complete the project. Yeah, it's... I mean, it's a pretty dire situation for a lot of companies, but like I read about how the, the rugby union has like slashed their, their payroll in half just to sort of cut costs and do whatever else. But um, we'll try and stay a bit positive. So with your with your work with the Blackburns, like how did that idea come about? Like I knew that you were obviously invested in all of the schoolboy stuff, but like did we just talking to a Blackburn and the idea came about or was it sort of something you had in the works for a while? The idea was born over a jug at the Sprig and Fern, or at least that's when I had the conviction to finally pursue it in writing and in meetings with the rugby union. But I'd been commentating women's rugby on a local iwi station for a couple of seasons, and I say this very sincerely, the most exciting player I've seen in the last couple of seasons in Wellington as a woman and her name is Aisha Letiainga. She's a winger for Ori's and the Pride. For Ori's Jordan, she scored 110 tries in 50 games. And every time I've commentated her play, she will score a try from at least past the halfway line. 
and really her talent is a revelation and the woman themselves having not watched a lot of them before uh, had proven to be a revelation so as someone who's inquisitive and I guess a little bit different I wanted to explore the history of women's rugby and what I've learnt is that the women are incredibly determined, successful, and they've had to fight very hard for their status. So in 1989, the first international match between the New Zealand 15 and a California Grizzlies team was played at Lancaster Park in Christchurch. New Zealand won by 13-7 to 7 against a very competitive American outfit. In those days, Jordan... American women's rugby was more advanced than New Zealand because they had a foothold in the university system. And interestingly, Jack Carifi, Duplessis Carifi's father, he was a guest on this podcast, he was the assistant coach of New Zealand alongside an extraordinary man by the name of Laurie O'Reilly. And Laurie O'Reilly was really the catalyst for women's rugby enjoying the status that it does today. Every time the Black Ferns play Australia... They contest the Laurie O'Reilly Trophy, and O'Reilly was the organiser of the first Black Ferns team to go to the World Cup in 1991. The Black Ferns in 1991 had to fundraise their own way to the tournament. It cost each player $5,000 to get to the World Cup in Cardiff, which wasn't officially sanctioned by the International Rugby Board. It was essentially a renegade outfit. They played hard. They impressed the spectators. They didn't impress the officials, though, because in 1994 the World Cup was deemed unofficial and New Zealand didn't attend. It wasn't until 1998 in Amsterdam, of all places, that the Women's World Cup was finally recognised by international rugby and New Zealand won that tournament emphatically. They beat the USA 44-12 in the final. There was a woman on the wing by the name of Vanessa Coots. They called her the Lady Lomu. She scored five tries. Farah Palmer, who was the first New Zealand woman on the rugby board, was the captain of that team. Louisa Wall in Parliament, who passed the same-sex marriage legislation, was in that team. And a number of very prominent New Zealanders, Mel Robinson, the commentator, was in that team. And they created a momentum which has proved unstoppable, Jordan. But it still took 20 years for women to get recognised professionally. The team won the World Cup again in 2017, beat England 41-32 41-32 in the final and Toka Naitua, the prop forward, scored a hat-trick in the second half. 28 players were professionally contracted to the union, including Toka, who told me she became such a celebrity in her hometown of Tokaroa that she scampered out of the warehouse after being paged by the boss, reminding the locals that Toka was in the warehouse willing to pose for photographs and autographs even though she wasn't. That's unbelievable. So, so what's the sort of situation um, in terms of their profession now? Is, are they? I know that the sevens are equally paid, but what about for the fifteens? The sevens is a very serious program, and that has a little bit more momentum because it's an Olympic sport. And the New Zealand sevens girls are absolutely on fire at the moment. They've won their last twenty-four games. Last year, they won fifty games on a trot in uh, capturing the World Series title for the fifth time. The 15s players struggle a lot more, though, Jordan, and some of them are travelling extraordinary distances just to play in the domestic competition in Northland, where they assembled a team for the first time this year, coached by Shira Waka, who was a legendary Black Ferns flanker. Some of the players were travelling two and a half hours return just to train. <laughs> Honestly, I can't even say if a lot of men would do that, to be honest. Um, the status of women's rugby, Jordan, was so dismissive from the male authorities that Fiona Richards, who was a lock forward, the sister of Anna Richards, who's New Zealand's greatest player in the women's game, she told me in 1994 when they played Australia in the first official test in Australia, they were given hand-me-down jerseys from the New Zealand Colts, and Fiona Richards, who was a size 11, was presented with a size 18 jersey and expected to play a fully-fledged international in a size 18 jersey. The other thing 
that happened in that 1994 test, Jordan, was there was a woman on the wing by the name of Tasha Williams who scored two tries and her only international for New Zealand. And she went on to become a seven-time New Zealand hammer-throwing champion, went to the Olympic Games and the Commonwealth Games. She then represented New Zealand in bobsleigh, and now she's a Masters record holder in weightlifting and powerlifting. So a lot of really extraordinary all-round sportswoman represented New Zealand in rugby. One, because they had no rugby opportunity for a long time, so they pursued other avenues. But the thing that made the New Zealand Black Ferns so successful in those early years is that they had access to genuine athletes that other countries simply did not have. Yeah, yeah totally. So, I mean, that's a lot of information. So, yeah, take us back to the first interview. So, you approach the, the rugby union, you hassle them, they finally give you the all clear, and then, you know, what was the direction from there? Then they wouldn't give me the phone numbers for the players. So, what had to happen was that I would ring one lady and earnestly explain what I was doing and then I would coerce them into giving me other contacts and the whole thing built momentum and of the 209 women to be officially capped by New Zealand I estimate I've written roughly 130 drafts I tell you about another woman who is absolutely extraordinary is Sue Garden Bashup there's only three black ferns who have passed. So now is really the time to do this project because the vast majority of the talent are still alive and we can get first-hand accounts of their experiences. Sugan and Bashup, Tia Pasi, and one other woman by the name of Tracy Lemon have passed. Tia Pasi played 20 seasons in Wellington Club Rugby. She finished her career in Johnsonville. Such a beautiful woman that she didn't drink she was a devout Christian and she used to clean up the Johnsonville dressing rooms after the game and if any of the players left stuff behind because of their own recklessness, she'd send it back to her folks in the island. What a beautiful woman, Tia Pasi. But Sue Garden Bashup, the Bashup's mother, she's another integral figure in the development of New Zealand women's rugby. In 1998, she was the first woman to coach a men's senior side. She took North's to the Jubilee Cup semi-finals. She played touch for New Zealand. She played basketball for New Zealand. And she also coached Otago. And Otago was responsible in the late 90s for producing Melody Robinson, Farah Palmer, Analia Rush, who became the backbone of the New Zealand women's team for the best part of a decade. And what beautiful young men, Sue Garden Bashup, has produced and Jackson who's been a mainstay for the Wellington Lions for some time, Connor who's with the Highlanders and Georgia, beautiful girl, Georgia recently returned from America on a NCAA hockey scholarship. Yeah, well, um, I know Georgia and um, I, I've got to know Jackson or I've met Jackson on a couple of occasions and yeah, yeah. In terms of like the family, I mean, and you talk about the dad as well, Stephen, and then you got Graham. Both of them are all black, so yeah, a very, very talented family. Uh, but even progressing from that with your tall ferns, uh, not tall ferns, sorry, your black ferns work. What for you? Because the rugby union um, obviously don't have the means to pay you. What will you look to do once you uh, finish it? Well, one of the great challenges of my lifestyle, Jordan, has been. The summertime, I've been very blessed for the best part of a decade now to make a reasonable living out of rugby-related activity in the winter. But in my summers, I've been a bartender, I've been a call centre salesperson, I've been overseas a number of times, which has been fantastic. And I've dabbled in other sports unsuccessfully, but I guess... I'm in the same position as a lot of other people at the moment. The world is very uncertain and you just have to wait and see how the cookie crumbles, I guess. There might come a point where I have to roll a seven again, but hopefully not too uh, soon. But rugby has always surprised me with the opportunities that it's provided. In terms of my playing background, 
All I can say is that it was highly unaccomplished. In fact, uh, Earl Curtin, the great uh, all-black coach, used to insist that his team on windy days at Athletic Park uh, keep the ball close to the sideline. And the idea was to conceal the ball from the strength of the wind and use the forwards to monopolise possession. Use the sideline as your friend. I always thought that was very practical for someone who couldn't catch, pass and run. So I gave up pretty quickly and then tried cricket. And I reckon I'm the only person in the world to be hit for a six off a hat-trick ball, so that didn't last very long either. And I was lucky that I had uh, Keith Quinn as a next-door neighbour growing up in Windrum Avenue. And as a young man without a father, he essentially became a de facto father and developed within me this uh, passion for talking about rugby. People have always told me I talk too much. I think it's a totally untrue allegation, but it seems to have uh, got me by, and I'm very grateful for that. No, definitely. You've, um, you've instilled in me uh, countless bits of wisdom over our, I mean, what would it be now? We're close to seven years of friendship? Seven years of uh, friendship, Jordan, and... The high school first 15 rugby scene uh, completely changed my life. And I'll give you the background on that because it is important in my uh, story. So in 2004, I had my first uh, foray in radio. I went to the New Zealand training, radio training school at Kenaparu in Pauru. I used to catch uh, two trains just to get there. And I did a six-month crash course in radio. And I got a job at News Talk ZB as a breakfast producer. I wasn't really interested in that, but I was dead keen to become a sports commentator, and unbelievably, as an 18-year-old, they put me on the sideline for a Jubilee Cup final between Norse and Porneke, and that was a significant game because Norse won their first Jubilee Cup beat. Porneke 20-18 in the final. Lua Vailolo, who was a Manu Samoa international halfback, scored an 80-metre try, and Tamati Allison played first five that day and had a university exam the next morning. But my experience of that Jubilee Cup final wasn't as grateful as Norse. On the sideline afterwards, I interviewed uh, Ross Bond, who's now the Wellington Pride coach, fiery club stalwart Ross Bond, and he lost five finals in six years with Pornicki, and I confidently approached Ross with the microphone and I, my first question was, Ross, uh, how do you feel about losing the Jubilee Cup final? And he told me I feel like shit, and that was the end of the interview. And so uh, shortly after that, I was stumbling through the breakfast producing job. I was really hopeless at it. And I got the sack after announcing on a traffic report of fatality. I was supposed to transfer that to the newsroom, but I had to have my Simon Dello moment. Well, that ended badly. So I went to university and studied uh, politics and history. It took me five years, three years of studying and two years of drinking. And I never really lost the will to do radio and to do uh, television. So one day I was walking past 63 Windrum Avenue where Keith lived, I was uh, 59, and he yelled out the window asking for some help about the St. Pat Silverstream and Wellington College First 15s, this program called Land Rover First 15 had just started in April of 2010 and Keith was the commentator and he knew that I was passionate about high school rugby so he asked me to assemble some information about the two teams, I did that and then about two days later I got an email from Martin Crowe, the New Zealand Cricket International, he was the boss of the rugby channel at the time and it was simply titled Martin Crow Rugby. I deleted it because I thought it was hair loss spam. And then I got a phone call from uh, Keith about 20 minutes later, and he said, did you get that email from Martin Crow?" I said, yeah, I did get an email from Martin Crow." He said, what do you do with it? I said, I deleted it. What's Martin Crow emailing me for? And he said, Adam, Martin Crow's offering you a job. So I rang Martin up, and Martin offered me $75 a week to assemble an email about each of the schools participating in this program and I suspect he was paying me out of his own wallet because I used to get a envelope in the letterbox each week with $75 in it so it was all under the table and I produced information about the schools, former All Blacks, great seasons, 
motto, role, and saved myself enough money to get to the top four finals in 2010. The Sky commentator stayed at the Millennium Hotel. I stayed in the backpackers across the road, but obviously made a favourable enough impression on uh, Martin when I first met him because in 2011, six months after that, I was hanging out in Melbourne, intending to stay, actually, and Martin offered me a job running a website. He said, Adam, have you ever run a website before? I said, I'm very experienced in this field. That was total nonsense. And I got a gig, and it lasted nine incredible years and made me a great friends like yourself. What an amazing run. You, you talk about <laughs> Keith Quinn and obviously the, the influence that he's had on you. I mean, what was it like growing up next to Keith Quinn? You know, he's, he's not just rugby. You know, he's everything. You know, he's the Olympics. He's tennis. You know, would you just sit back and just listen to him tell stories? You know, like, what was it like, him being a defector father? Of, he's a connoisseur of life, uh, Jordan. It's not just sport, it's uh, music, it's uh, politics, it's eating. a huge uh, appetite. And really, living next to Keith Quinn was a real education in life and, and how to enjoy yourself and how to conduct yourself. I think the thing that Keith Quinn most taught me about rugby is the love of the game, being genuine and expressing yourself about it, and diligent too. You have to have a respect for the sport. It's not about you, it's about the combatants on the field, it's about the personalities off the park, and your job as an announcer is to research them and try and ascertain as much information as you can about them and present them in a way which is engaging for the audience. If you have a team sheet and it's numbered 1 to 15 and you say number 6 has the ball, number 7 has the ball, there's no personality behind that. So as someone who doesn't have an innate understanding of the technical aspects of the sport, my job as a reporter and an announcer is to try and capture some of the personalities that I come across, and I've been very blessed to come across some real beauties over the years. So having worked alongside the, the First of Dean channels, the, you know, the college, the lamb of the First of Dean, and all of that stuff to do with like, the college media, you must have seen quite a few blacks sort of develop over that time, especially starting in 2010. I mean, can you sort of you know, off the top of your head, name some some of the biggest games that you've watched and, you know, some of the players where you were like, yep, I knew this guy was going to be an All Black just because of how dominant and how, you know, just the way he carried himself at school. Sure. The expression of the show was tomorrow stars today, and that was so true. The best player I saw in a decade involved in that show was Adi Sevier. He was the captain of Rongatai College in 2011, they played him at centre because the rest of the team were hopeless and they figured by putting Adi at centre he'd get his hands on the ball a lot. He carried them to the semi-finals and then he played the New Zealand Secondary Schools test against Australia as an open side flanker and won the Bronze Boot Award as the player of the match. So two entirely different positions that he dominated. Not only that, though, Adi was the head prefect at Rongatai College. He competed in the McEvity Shield and won events and he was an awesome young man and has blossomed into one of the very best in the world. I remember watching Roger Tuivasa-Shek play for Odahu College against De La Salle College. It was a mid-table 1A Auckland clash. Wasn't very enthusiastic about covering it. And Roger Tuivasa-Shek turned up and he dazzled dancing around his opposition like Fred Astaire. I really enjoyed watching Asafo Moore play for St. Pat's uh, Silverstream, not only did he relish scoring tries and leading his team, but he always looked like he wanted to murder someone with the appearance that he had, and you knew that with his killer instinct, he was going to go a long way. You see a lot of big guys who think they're tough, but you don't see guys with the killer instinct of Asafo Moore. I remember a very dramatic game in 2012, between Otago Boys High School and Christchurch Boys High School. It was a South Island final, top four place at stake, and Anton Leonard-Brown scored two tries in the first half for Christchurch, who were well ahead. He got subbed at half-time, and Otago roared back to win. That was a very dramatic match. In uh, 2000, 
and 14. The top four final was a draw between Hamilton Boys High School and Scots College. And Scots College had a sensational young team with Connor Garden Bashup, who we mentioned on the wing, scoring two tries. In the semi-final of that tournament, Malu Tuitama, who played for the Wellington Lions, Mark Rico Iwani, who was the captain of Auckland Grammar. And Rico Iwani was made to look like a turnstile by Malu Tuitama. But Iwani played some very memorable matches, particularly against King's College, which is the big game in Auckland. Grammar against Kings. And there were other games where the rivalry wasn't as pronounced or historical, where you'd see a guy and go, wow, he's incredible. And the most memorable instance of that was uh, Damien McKenzie on uh, Thursday afternoon in the snow of Christchurch. Christchurch Boys High School played Christ College, and down there that game really counts. They take the afternoon off work to go to that game, and McKenzie played a blinder, but he missed six kicks, and Christchurch won by a point. Now, the following Monday, Christ College, having lost the biggest game of their season in front of several thousand spectators, had to go and play Rathkill in the wire wrapper. Now, under normal circumstances, Rathkill is a team that Christ should easily beat. But Jordan, for Rathkill, Christ is that game they get up for. Those private school tops from Christchurch, we're going to get stuck into them. And Christ were still hung over from the disappointment of losing the match to Christchurch boys. And I remember with a minute to go, Rathkill was up 17-16 and they had a penalty on the Christ 22. They had a goal kicker who'd had a shocker, so that wasn't an option. They had a line-out which was malfunctioning, but they had the superior scrum. So we were all thinking that Rathkill would take the scrum on the 22, tie the ball up and win the game. They decided to go for the line-out instead. So the ball was kicked out, landed five out from the line, and Christ stole the ball. Damien McKenzie got it on one touch line. He kicked to the winger on the opposite touch line. He got the ball to the 22. And then McKenzie received the ball again and busted to the Rathkill 22. A few phases later, McKenzie galloped away to score the winning try. And I thought, wow, this guy is the real deal. Here he is recovering from arguably the worst moment of his life at that point, missing all those kicks against Christchurch boys, to win this game against Rathkill when Christ were an awful pickle. It would have been very embarrassing for Christ to lose that game. But McKenzie kept his call, showed some brilliance, and now look at him. What a sensational talent. Yeah, well, he's, he's my favourite player, eh? I, he's sort of one of those guys, when you watch him play, he glides, and it's almost like unfair how much time he has on his hands. You know, like, he'll catch the ball, run around in, like, four circles, and then find a gap. Whereas, like, you know, like, whenever I've tried to go do that, you know, at my local, like, club rugby game, I always seem to get clobbered. So I have no idea how, like, a man of his size, like, he, he, I mean, he's obviously a lot stronger than me and a lot fitter, but in terms of height and width. But, yeah, he's um, he's just remarkable, eh? Like, to, to be able to compete at that, at, le- at that level, and especially, you know, because the game gets harder the higher you go. But for someone like him, while his play style might not be all that consistent when she gets to that test level. He's just still has that that brilliance to just, you know, break a game wide open. And it, it is, it just blows me away how, again, how a guy that small can do that. And I guess he's just always been the same since he was at school. In the contemporary game, he's the player that most reminds me of Christian Cullen. He has Cullen-esque, if that's a word like, uh, qualities. And the other thing I love about Damien McKenzie is the audacity and spirit with which he plays the game. People get annoyed when he does that grin before he kicks. I love that kind of personality shining through, and I really hope that he recovers from his injuries and can slot back into the all-black team, where I think he's been most effective so far in his career, coming off the bench with 20 minutes to go. It's an absolute nightmare playing the all-blacks in a torrid contest when they're so fast and athletic. And then we bring on Damien McKenzie. That is a huge asset for any team. It'll be interesting, though. I had this conversation with with a couple of my boys. and When you look at the, the All Black back three, and obviously we have no idea what's going to happen with the Richie Winer and Bowden experiment, 
But say that stays in place, do you think that McKenzie will get that, that 23 jersey or do you think they'll look to reserve it for someone like Geordie Barrett who perhaps might offer a bit of a bit more versatility with being able to sort of cover from the midfield out? Well, it's interesting. Geordie Barrett is a very similar player to Damien McKenzie. He has greater size and arguably superior goal-kicking to offer, but where McKenzie probably has the measure on Barrett is just sheer speed, and if you're trying to open the game up in the last 20 minutes, especially if it's a torrid struggle, then perhaps McKenzie has the advantage. I think those two are going to be vying for that spot for a long time, and they're hard to separate because they both offer such genuine skill but the other elephant in the room in regards to that debate is when will Ben Smith retire Ben Smith wonderful player coming towards the end of his career who do they see as the most viable replacement for Ben Smith the other thing about Damian McKenzie which perhaps helps him ahead of Barrett is the fact that he can play first 5-8 whereas Geordie is probably not likely to be used in that position so having cover for first five in a big test match such an important position may be more handy than having cover for the other areas of the back line yeah I guess it's all going to really sort of just play out with whatever they do with the, the 10 and 15 whether or not they keep the two playmakers or they go for a more conventional setup but we'll crack on back to the schoolboy stuff though and one of the things that you probably would have been able to see firsthand having covered so many games is the the, the growth or the development and the professionalism of schoolboy rugby, considering all the work that's been done with academies, uh, all the agents and scouts that are going out and sort of trying to pluck these kids from as young as sort of 13 and 14. Having been around the game since 2010, or even beforehand, but really been in it from 2010 up until late last year, do you think that the game's gotten better because of all of the investment that's being made into these kids at such a younger age? Or do you think it's actually been detrimental to not only the game, i.e. stuff like St. Kent's and all the all the poaching that goes on? And then even on top of that, uh, the player welfare with having these kids have so much responsibility, you know, they're pretty much having agents come to them and telling their parents that these kids can be all blacks, you know, if they do the right amount of work, which... It's pretty ludicrous considering like how many kids actually go on to be professional rugby players um, with the amount that play each year. So I just I'd love to get your view on it, considering yeah, your um, your familiarity with it all. Well, it's staggering what a school like St Kent's can provide, and it's not a black and white answer in terms of what they do being right or wrong. If you're a parent of a young, ambitious man from a difficult background and St Kennigan's offers you a scholarship paying for your education developing your rugby with all their incredible resources then that's a very tantalising character to take but if St Kent's go out and essentially manufacture a team of players that aren't from their school where does everybody else go and what does that do to the rest of the competition? There's an extraordinary gap between the haves and the have-nots. And if you have a monopoly of talent at one school, the whole competition suffers. And that was the point that the 10 1A schools were trying to make last year when they rebelled against St Kennigan's. I can totally understand why a boy would be motivated to go to St Kennigan's, but I think the game has a responsibility to make sure it's as a level playing field as possible. So having schools go out purchasing scholarships willy-nilly is not right. It needs to be capped because otherwise you have a situation where you've got one team winning games by 100 points and that does nobody any good and the game doesn't grow. So St Kennigan's have had a wonderful success with their first 15 but a very legitimate question to ask about the health of rugby at that school is why with such a dominant first 15 are the numbers in the lower grades falling? Are they actually doing what's good for rugby or are they doing what's good for their marketing 
budget? Are they doing what's good for the onset of professional players? But in terms of the effort and skill that these guys put in, they are so much better than what they were when I was at school, Jordan. Uh, look at a guy like Daniel Tupo, the Tongan Thor, for example. What a beast he is. And the start of our 2014 season, he scored three tries in 20 minutes, two from halfway in a televised game against Kelston Boys High School. And the footage of him accomplishing that feat went viral. And on Monday morning, he was in the classroom and there was a knock on the door from the headmaster retrieving Taniela Tupo and there was an agent on the phone from Toulon who had watched the game trying to encourage Daniel Tupo to France. That's the kind of level of uh, talent and interest that now exists in those players. In terms of uh, schoolboy rugby in its present state though, uh, Jordan, I'm very worried about the state of the game. I think a lot of this professional drive within the first 15s has alienated a lot of boys. It's just a little bit too serious, I think. And there's a lack of balance in education and rugby. And it's a very fickle career path. So there needs to be a robust backstop for these guys to resort to if they don't make it in the professional game. Yeah, totally. And one of the other things that I've sort of thought of is that because... I mean, there's work being done with Sport New Zealand at the moment to make sporting experiences at sort of around that 13 or 14 year old age group. You know, they're taking away a lot of rec teams and they're trying to make them more about the, the experience rather than the the need to win or the need to be part of a certain team. But like you said, because there are a lot of scouts and there's all this investment being going into like first 15, sort of around that 15, 16 year old sort of bubble. What I've also found is that, and what the statistics have shown, uh, especially with rugby in New Zealand, is that there's been a drop-off in players sort of progressively um, over the last two decades. And what I've, you know, what I've found is that you'll get that a lot of guys, if they miss out on the first 15 at school, you know, they'll stop playing rugby or when they leave school and if they miss out on the academy or they miss out on a certain rec team, they almost feel like it's not worth playing rugby anymore because there just isn't that investment in the grassroots that there was probably previous to my lifetime so I mean have you seen some of the effects of that? Oh very much so in fact I think the biggest problem in the game is the retention of talent from high school to club and it's a very difficult issue to resolve because unfortunately most clubs in New Zealand are financially struggling and in the environment of the coronavirus we've had a new term in our lexicon come to fruition and that's an essential service and unfortunately clubs alongside schools aren't going to survive. Schools are always going to be around regardless of what situation we're in and you can much easily emulate a professional environment within a school. You have a very structured day, nine to three, you have periods where you're assigned to work. You don't have the realities of normal life, a mortgage kids, responsibilities. So it's very easy to emulate a professional-like environment in a school situation. Hamilton Boys High School is a great example of it. They have a hostel with 140 boys. I stayed there a couple of times in 2014. I only saw one fat kid in the whole hostel. They were all athletes. And the gym and the swimming pool was next door, so they get up at 6 o'clock. They have their initial training in the gym, they go to class and they might do two periods of maths and English. And then they have a thing called rugby class where they learn about their bodies and strategy and this type of thing. And then they train after school and they were doing this up to eight times a week. Incredible. If you're playing for a rugby club, there's no way you can assemble guys to play eight times a week. And so what you've got is these incredibly talented and ambitious young men who go from that highly rigid, organised, successful environment to a club where sometimes you're arguing over boots before the kickoff. You're not wrong there. I think the other thing you have to consider, and you know, I, I totally understand this, is that you know, when you leave school, you know, you're either studying or you're working, and that can take up a fair amount of time. 
in your life. And so, well, rugby has sort of been someone's livelihood or, you know, has been a big part of someone's life while they're at school because they've had no other responsibilities. I think that obviously once you turn 18 and you sort of left to fend for yourself, if, if you're leaving home or even if you're still at home, you sort of have to make a choice about where you want to invest your time. And like you said, unfortunately, like if you aren't really being shown uh, an opportunity to possibly, you know, look at maybe playing rugby for a bit of money, you know, whether that be fully professionally, semi-professionally, then a lot of guys sort of turn their back on the game because it's like they don't, they don't see um, it, it being all that worthwhile. So, I think yeah. the biggest worry in terms of the school system, I can see why St. Kennegan's and Scott's and Christ's run their rugby programs like they do. They get successful results on the field, which lifts the esteem of the school, which lifts the profile from a marketing viewpoint of the school. And in regards to a program like St. Kent's, they've cultivated careers for professional rugby players, TJ Fayani, Dalton Papali'i, a whole host of talented players. But unfortunately, in New Zealand, there is a growing concern that you have to be at certain schools to make rep teams and that's just a fact so in the first uh, 30 years of the New Zealand secondary schools team Jordan 1978 to 2008 there were 64 private school boys selected over that tenure in the last eight years there have been 64 school uh, private school boys in the New Zealand secondary schools team and in 2018 which was my last year with Sky in the New Zealand secondary schools training squad, which was 53 players, eventually whittled to about half that, 21 players were from six private schools. So what does that say in terms of the concentration of talent? What does that say to the guy at Onslow College or Shirley Boys High School or the school that isn't as privileged and resourced about rugby? Yeah, it's, yeah it obviously is a difficult one because... You know, there is the old adage that, you know, cream always rises to the top. So if you are good enough, um, even if you are at a smaller school, and but you, you've seen cases where that's been the case. So someone like TJ Perinara, I was obviously at Mana College. And like you said, someone like Roger Torvastashek was at Odahu Boys. But yeah, like, you're not wrong in saying that there's a far greater level of exposure at the bigger schools in New Zealand. And so you can obviously see why kids are sort of setting their goals or are doing all they can to sort of you know, put themselves in a, in a position to, you know, secure a scholarship or even just be enrolled at the school because... And those, yeah. op, those players, unfortunately, though, are becoming less and less common. And in regards to uh, St. Kennegan's, I don't want to pick on them because I've actually had quite a good working relationship with them over the years. But in uh, 2018, Napier Boys High School made the top four final and St Kent's recruited two of their players. Now, why, if you were at Napier Boys High School, having made the national final, would you go to St Kent's? I guess there is the argument to be made that there's possibly... I mean, I've never been to Napier Boys High School, um, and neither that for St Kent's, but as you know, like, St Kent's is almost a little city um, when you actually go onto their grounds and... They've got a strong old boys association in terms of the money that flows through that school. So I guess there is the argument that one, you know, you're going to that school, and with that comes the the opportunities um, to network uh, with successful people and successful families. And I think even outside of that, they possibly offer greater academic opportunities. You just don't know. And then, and again, like you said, maybe there's greater exposure. There's the argument to be made that maybe they're playing against. Uh, players in the 1A competition, so that makes them better players, but I, I totally agree with you in that if you're already at a predominantly strong rugby school, that, um, you know, yeah, like, why would you leave, you know, like, why wouldn't you want to stick around at home? But again, you know, like, you can't really judge these kids or judge these families making these decisions because they're doing what they deem is best for them, and, you know, outside of that, you know, nobody should have any input into it, or they shouldn't care what anybody else thinks. And one of the difficulties of a place like uh, Napier Jordan is the fact that they don't have a university, so that can be a consideration in the decision-making prospects after school. 
So I guess to sum up this uh, conversation, I'm not philosophically opposed to scholarships, but I think the game has a responsibility to ensure that it's played on an even playing field, or at least as even a playing field as possible, because what you've got, which is a very difficult thing to manage, are two competing forces. You've got very high-performance-based environments who are producing players for the next professional level, and that's competing with Joe Average, who just wants to play rugby for his school. And I don't know what the answer is. Perhaps we need to investigate an NCAA-style situation where we split it into two divisions. But having a professional-like environment of St Kent's playing a common co-ed school... It just doesn't work. No. Well, yeah, like you said, at least now, in, in terms of the, the preference uh, for some of the rep teams and the results and the, the margin of said results. But again, I guess we'll, we'll, we'll wrap that up there. Um, but even for the time being, Adam, um, obviously as we enter level two and the prospect of community sport looks to get underway, hopefully within the next month, Will we be fortunate to catch you on the sidelines in the club rugby scene here in Wellington? Absolutely. In fact, uh, the iwi station I'm working for, Tiapuka Otiika, is now the exclusive uh, broadcaster of Wellington Club Rugby. Unfortunately, Radio Sport, after many years of commitment, have made the decision not to carry local club rugby this year. That's uh, desperately disappointing. Remember the Dominion Post haven't covered the Jubilee Cup since 2017 so Te o this tiny iwi station is the last bastion of local rugby broadcasting which is amazing given we started five years ago and one of the first games I called for Te Puka was on an embankment standing on three chairs uh, by myself for 80 minutes uh, commentating rugby on the radio was Probably the most fun I have in a week, uh, Jordan, and I've missed it uh, terribly. Uh, I've become adept, I guess, at talking for 80 minutes. I think if you're earnest and genuine enough about your passion in rugby and keep making mistakes, you almost get better by accident. People end up tolerating you. And I've had uh, so much fun calling uh, radio rugby over the years and some of the incidences have been absolutely hilarious. I've never told uh, this story before, but there was a club game a few years ago between Huddle Boys, Marist and Ories, and the first uh, five minutes of the game, I actually completely made it up. I was at the Petone Rec reporting a high school game, and a player went down injured, and I had to stay to get the final details of this uh, high school game. But in the meantime, the club match at the hut wreck had kicked off and so I was in the car trying to get to the hut wreck to uh, make this uh, game and the producer saying you at the game yet we're on air I said no I'm not there give me uh, a minute to get there and he said we're on air in 10 seconds so I had to start commentating the match from the back of the car and so I read the teams out and essentially made up the first five minutes (laughs) Um, and you can get away with that uh, sort of thing on radio. Radio is the theatre of the mind. You are the ears of the uh, listener. Um, Sorry, the eyes of the listener. Uh, That's a Murray Walker moment right there. And so it's so much uh, fun doing the radio. I mean, let me give you an example on the poetic license that you can enjoy on the radio. On TV, there is no way possible that you can make a scrum reset exciting. There's just no way you can do it because you see the bodies flop down to the ground. But on radio, you can make a scrum reset incredibly exciting. Look at these two titanic packs converging together. The squeeze is on and they plummet to the surface. And look at the hooker, mud and blood cascading down his cheek. Another reset. So (laughs) you really can't. You can really have a lot of fun on the radio. Oh, (laughs) I think I, I speak for everyone in that um, that was that was beautiful, Adam. And 
I'm sure that won't be your your last bit of adding a bit of flavour to what you're seeing uh, while sort of broadcasting on the radio waves. But anyway, uh, I've really enjoyed talking to you. Uh, you were uh, one of the how do I and I and I mean this sincerely is that you were almost like a rugby encyclopedia the way you were able to just bang out all of these facts and your ability to retain information and not only not only in rugby I know you're into your music you're into your boxing and so on to me is really incredible and um just for me personally mate don't let anyone ever tell you that you talk too much because um if you know what you're talking about and as, and as long as you're doing it in the right way I I feel like you know that's some, another opportunity to learn of someone like you so Again, thank you very much for taking the time out um, to have a quarter draw with me, and I look forward to catching up with you on the sidelines once we get back to uh, the club rugby season. Oh, that's very kind of you. And I'll leave you with another story, uh, Jordan. I have a very strange mind. You're quite right in identifying. I can remember the All Blacks touring record from 63-64, played 36-1-34, lost one, drawn one, and yet I can't change a bike tyre. So I'm not very practical in a garage, and I'm certainly not a pickup on Tinder, but... One of my favourite uh, rugby stories of all time was when I got to meet the Black Panther, Waka Nathan, the great all-black uh, flanker, and he was one of only three Māoris on the 63-64 tour, and in that 63-64 tour team, Brian Lahore played, Colin Meads played, Wilson Winneray played, and John Graham played, so that's four knighthoods, and so... When I asked uh, Walker, who was in the early onset of dementia, in this interview, what was the key to the success of the 63-64 team, he said, Adam, it was very simple. We had four knighthoods and a token Murray. Brilliant. Oh, man, I will let you plot off and do whatever you need to do for the rest of the day, and um, I'll get to editing this. appreciate your time. Yeah, sweet as. Uh, no, it was good fun. I hope uh, it came across all right, so uh, give you some material there.